Welcome to The Exchange. I'm Dan Riley. The Exchange is a streaming internet talk show and podcast of interviews with noteworthy people about their lives, ideas, and current events. This week I sit down with Robin Thomas, Executive Director of the Law Center to Prevent Gun Violence. During our conversation, Robin talks about gun control history in the United States, the 101 California shooting in San Francisco, and how California has been able to reduce gun violence through statewide legislation. All right, Robin. Well, uh, first of all, I just wanted to uh, thank you for, for coming on the show. It's good to have you, and welcome to The Exchange. Thanks for having me on. You got it. I um, would love to start, as I generally do, in just sort of learning a little bit about your uh, professional background. I know that uh, you know, you're a lawyer and went to Duke, then went to Miami for, for law school. Um, was it always your goal in, in sort of going in that trajectory uh, with your education to get involved in uh, gun control issues, or was that something that sort of came to you after you were done with, with your schooling? No, it's definitely a more recent part of my professional life. I've always been really uh, interested and involved in social justice. So in high school, I worked at a soup kitchen. When I was at Duke, I was involved in a number. Of, I worked at the homeless shelter and on a number of other projects through Duke. Same thing at law school. I founded a nonprofit when I was at law school. So cool. I always had this um, slant in my life towards being involved in things that I'm you know, we're focused on social justice issues, mm-hmm. but there wasn't a particular thing other than maybe homelessness that sort of had a common thread. Um, it was actually long after that, after I worked at uh, two big law firms, mm-hmm. the last one, a big firm in New York City, and then moved to California and started working in the nonprofit arena that I learned about this organization and, and became more interested in, in gun violence and gun policy. Um, my husband at the time worked for a lawyer, a partner at a law firm who was on the board of directors of the law center. Okay. And so he introduced us to the organization, invited us to some events, and I started hearing the stories hmm. and learning some of the facts. And I became a little more passionate about the issue and interested in it. And so when this position came open, I was only 31 at the time um, and thought, well, if they'd have me, this would be such a cool Thing to do, and I didn't know that much about gun policy. Just what mm-hmm. I learned uh, in some of the events I had gone to. Cool. And what were the, were the, were the, the some of the stories and the facts that you learned that sort of piqued your interest in in this organization? Well, I went to a couple every year. This organization has a big gala event at the around the anniversary of the tragic mass shooting at 101 California Street in 1993. There was this mass shooting at 101 California Street at a law firm called Pettit Martin. And around after that, the legal community in San Francisco really stepped up and said, we got to do something mm-hmm. and founded the organization. So every year around that time, we have a big sort of fundraiser event. And I went to a couple of those. And at those events, they usually have a survivor or the family of a victim speaking um, about their experience. And the first one I went to was a young man who'd been shot and paralyzed. He was young. I think at the time he was a teenager. Mm-hmm. Um, who got up on the stage and spoke about his experiences and, and a number of the members of the board of directors also lost friends or loved ones mm. in 101 California street. So just connection to the organization kind of exposes you to kind of the issues and stories surrounding gun violence. And it's, it's pretty, it's, it's pretty powerful and moving once mm-hmm. you start hearing those stories and seeing the impact that it's had on people's lives. Yeah. What, th- those are sort of the, the anecdotes. And I think a lot of Americans, you know, 
that, that resonates with them. What are, what are sort of some of the facts that you learned about just generally how many people are, are killed in the U.S. Or, or just injured in the U.S. By, by gun violence? Anything that sticks out in your mind that also resonated with you at the time that, you, that made you interested in the work here? You know, it's, it's interesting. The numbers are so big on this issue that when you say them, your brain almost can't comprehend the scope of the problem. Mm-hmm. There's 120,000 120,000 Americans shot every single year. Mm. That's 300 people every single day. And I read a lot of those stories because I get this sort of gun news aggregation. Mm. It's domestic violence. It's suicide. 22 veteran suicides a day. I mean, the numbers are absolutely shocking. So when you say them and you look at them all the time, you almost can't feel it because it's so big. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the facts that really started to move me were starting to understand that there is a solution, that there is a correlation between um, good policies and good programs and reduction in gun violence. Mm-hmm. You know, in California, mm-hmm. we have serious urban gun violence issues and pop- population density, et cetera. And yet we have the ninth lowest gun death rate in the country. Mm-hmm. And that's in part because we have really strong policies. And mm-hmm. it's in part because we have good community programs and awareness. Um, and we don't have the kind of gun culture in a lot of the state that you have in other states. You know, Wyoming has a far higher gun death rate mm. than California, and they mm. don't have the poverty and, and, you know, problems that some of our urban centers do. So as I started to realize that this is a problem with solutions mm-hmm. and that our government isn't taking any steps, I mean, there's basically no law at the federal level at all. There's pretty much nothing. And mm. that blew me away. 120,000 people shot and our Federal federal legislators don't feel compelled to do anything. Mm -hmm. It's just, it sort of shocked me. And I thought, you know, this can't be right. Mm -hmm. Um, So you you kind of get impassioned as you start to see that. Um, It's, it's. It's shameful. Yeah. It really is. And I, I want to get into sort of what California has been able to do to, to help uh, prevent gun, gun death and gun violence. But for people that live in San Francisco specifically, what is the story and the specifics of 101 California Street for people who've never heard of that before? Sure. So in 1993, there was a law firm at 101 California Street called Pettit and Martin. And they had a disgruntled client. I'm not going to say his name. Mm. There's a move these days to not, to not use these names. Mm. Um, who We already had assault weapons uh, banned in mm. California, so he went to Nevada, and he bought some assault weapons there, drove back to San Francisco, got on the elevator with a couple of duffel bags full of guns, got off at the firm, actually got off at a few different floors, and just started shooting people. He shot, in the end, 16 people. Um, nine died, actually 10 eventually. Um, and it was shocking. I mean, this is a fancy business building. People at work in their suits doing mm-hmm. their job. You know, some of the stories that came out of that day are just so heartbreaking. One of the victims was a man named John Scully and his wife, Michelle Scully also worked in the office. She was an intern, I believe, and he was an associate there. And when they were, when they heard, when he heard gunshots, he ran to go find her and they were together when the gunman came toward them and he dove on top of his wife and Mm. they were both shot and John was killed Mm. and Michelle survived, but was injured. And so here's a story, and they were young, they were in their 20s, Mm. um, who literally sacrificed himself and was, you know, killed in this way and just so shocking and so courageous and so, um, you know, just abysmal that we're in this kind of situation. So that happened. And I think it really, really shocked the community here that where, you know, this idea that gun violence happens in, you know, blighted urban communities or it happens because of suicide or, you know, 
um, accidents with children, it just sort of shattered that idea. Here's a mm. bunch of lawyers who are used to being insulated mm. from this kind of thing, who all of a sudden had to deal with the fact that this can happen anywhere, mm-hmm. that it, no one is immune from the impact of it. Um, and so it created a lot of incentive. And even now, you know, the, the real bulwark of our support, the backbone of people who give us money, who do pro bono work for us, are people who woke up when that happened and have stayed committed for 20, 23 years now. Hmm. And, and after that happened, and, and maybe more specifically when you joined this organization uh, and became its ex- executive director, were there specific benchmarks or metrics or goals that the organization had, or was it generally just to create uh, more generally uh, saner policies around gun control? What what was the uh, sort of end goal, if there was one, of the organization? So in the early years of the organization, the goal was to get some federal laws passed, and they actually succeeded. In 1994, this organization was instrumental in helping get the assault, the federal assault mm-hmm. weapon ban passed. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, it had a sunset provision, so it expired in 2004. Right. But initially, we thought federal legislation was the answer because then you don't have this patchwork of state laws. But after the assault weapon ban passed and then um, th- there was some political fallout from it, um, we realized that federal legislation was a little bit um, unlikely. Mm -hmm. So we decided to redirect and really focus on the states. Mm -hmm. And we actually started in California. There's something called preemption, which prohibits local government from passing laws on a certain issue. California Mm -hmm. does not have preemption in Mm -hmm. gun policy. Mm -hmm. So cities can pass gun laws as well as at the state level. Mm -hmm. So it was this tremendous opportunity to use the cities as a laboratory to catalyze and inspire state action, and then the state as a laboratory to build a model Mm -hmm. of what comprehensive gun regulation would look like. So because we're here and because we have relationships here, we initially really focused on California. We still did work in other states, particularly where there's political will in New York and, mm-hmm. and Connecticut and a few other places. But really the focus of our efforts was, was in California. Mm-hmm. And it was an incredible experience because over the course of time, working with a really um, solid coalition of community groups, other policy groups, with Brady, mm-hmm. with Women Against Gun Violence, we had a lot of success. It wasn't easy. Mm-hmm. People think, oh, California, well, of course you can do it here. But, you know, 20 years ago, that wasn't the case. In mm-hmm. California, there was still a lot of pushback on mm-hmm. gun policy. Um, so we fought really hard. We started, we got a lot of cities, San Francisco and L.A. and Oakland to pass these laws first. Um, West Hollywood was one of the leaders in the early days. Mm-hmm. And over time, it catalyzed up to the state level where now we have this model. Mm-hmm. And what's been really interesting for me is that when I started here 10 years ago, Um, California had this incredibly comprehensive system, which has even gotten much better since then, Mm -hmm. but it wasn't possible to do much else in a lot of other States. There just, Mm. it wasn't, there wasn't political will and opportunity. Mm. And just in the last three years since the shooting at Newtown, that's changed a lot. Um, Mm. you certainly have States where it's going backwards, but in a lot of States where there was interest, but it just kind of couldn't get over the threshold. Mm -hmm. Now we're seeing a ton of progress. New York, Connecticut, Maryland, Delaware, Illinois, Colorado. You have this huge number of states that have since Newtown looked to California mm-hmm. for inspiration and as a model and have passed a lot of the same laws in those states that we it took us 20 years to get in place. Mm-hmm. So a lot of it, the opportunity has changed a lot re- more recently, mm-hmm. which has been really exciting to see. Mm-hmm. And and what, what are the specific laws that California has been successful in passing that have changed the way that that uh, the purchasing of guns or dealing with guns has uh, differentiated between now and, and say, 10 or 20 years ago? I would say the most significant 
difference here is we have universal background checks. So mm -hmm. we have background checks on every single sale and transfer of a weapon. Mm -hmm. And we keep records of those sales, which is really helpful for law enforcement. It's a great way to make sure people who shouldn't have guns don't have them. Uh, we have a 10 day waiting period, mm -hmm. which A, helps ensure that those background checks are done properly and you don't end up in what we call a default proceed, mm -hmm. which is what happened in Charleston with the shooter there that they didn't finish the background check in time. Hmm. So if they don't finish in three days, the person can get the gun here with 10 days. We make sure we have time to investigate all of these background checks mm -hmm. and also make sure that people have a cooling off period mm -hmm. who might otherwise, you know, mean to do harm. Uh -huh. Yeah. Um, so those are some of the foundational laws we have in place, but we have a whole bunch of other stuff. We have a list of unsafe handguns like Saturday night specials, junk guns, that you can't buy and sell here. Hmm. Assault weapons are prohibited in California. Mm -hmm. um, large capacity ammunition can't be bought or sold, although mm -hmm. it still can be owned, which is on a ballot initiative in, in California this mm -hmm. year to prohibit possession. Um, sniper rifles, 50 caliber sniper rifles are banned here. Hmm. Concealed carry, you can get permits, although it's very difficult in some counties. Mm -hmm. We have a really comprehensive system around what it takes to get a, a CCW permit here, which leads to less guns being carried loaded in public, hmm. which helps law enforcement, helps community safety. Hmm. Um, we have regulation, some regulation of dealers. So there's this really broad range of laws and really each law deals with different issues. So for example, in San Francisco, we have a really strong safe storage law, which requires mm -hmm. safe storage of your weapon when it's not under your control. Mm. And that's something that prevents theft. Mm -hmm. It prevents accidents in children. It prevents suicide. So there's different policies that get at different types of problems. I, I try to explain to people that gun violence isn't, there's no sort of um, one big bucket. There's mm -hmm. actually three really distinct components to gun violence. There's homicide, mm -hmm. suicide, and accidents. And they're very different in, in how they work. So how you prevent you know, accidents from happening is quite different from how you might begin to look at how homicide can be prevented, mm -hmm. what policies and what approaches work to address that issue. Mm -hmm. Same thing with suicide. There are steps we can take, but it's not necessarily the same types of policies that go to others. So it, the nuance comes in fast. Mm -hmm. And if you want to start talking about the policies in, in a nuanced way, you have to be able to sort of differentiate that. And we look at all of that in California. So, mm -hmm. you know, safe storage laws deal with, you know, accidents or trigger locks chamber load indicators. So something requiring that a gun show when it, when the chamber's loaded so people don't think they're dealing with an empty chamber when there's a bullet in there. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a variety of laws that get at trafficking and, and how to prevent the trafficking of illegal guns, which, which leads to homicide. We have a really um, comprehensive system around making sure people who commit domestic violence offenses and have TROs, et cetera, don't have guns. Mm -hmm. So you know, there's all these different pieces and that's yeah. why gun policy is actually very complicated. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious, it, all of the, all of the, these implementations that, that have taken place in California, is that are, in principle or legally speaking, is that also potentially possible in all of the other 49 states in, in the country? Or is there something unique about California that makes this sort of hands-on approach to gun, to state-based gun and gun uh, regulation possible? There's, there's not really a lot that should prohibit these kinds of laws from being implemented in other states. There are, there's a few little tricky areas where some states are passing laws which require strict scrutiny, which mm -hmm. is a court, the way courts review 
uh, constitutional issues that could make some of these laws a little more complicated. Mm-hmm. But there's no like structural reason why these laws couldn't be put in place in other states. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think the big difference in California is political will and mm-hmm. the power of mm-hmm. the NRA. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the NRA tends to be, and not just the NRA, but their allies. Uh, whether it's the uh, gun manufacturers or other um, advocacy groups, you know, in California, we have one called them um, Cal Guns. They're mm-hmm. sort of a, another gun rights advocacy group. Um, they just simply don't have that much power in California. Mm-hmm. They certainly show up. I mean, if we mm-hmm. go testify at a local hearing anywhere in California, you will get these guys, it's almost always men, not entirely, showing up. Not even from that place, you know, they'll drive in from wherever they live to testify against it. So they certainly haven't given up and they'll threaten cities. One of the things that we find astounding is we get a call from a city to help draft a new ordinance. We'll help them. And then they'll start getting threatening letters from the NRA saying, if you pass this law, we're going to sue you. Mm -hmm. And when these cities don't have a lot of money already, even if they would win on the constitutional challenge, they're reticent to even get Mm -hmm. involved in litigation. So they get bullied Mm-hmm. out of passing laws that might help make their communities safer. So the NRA hasn't given up in California, mm-hmm. but when it comes to state-level regulation and in cities like California and L.A. and Oakland, mm-hmm. they simply don't have much traction because mm-hmm. they don't have the political power and bullying power um, here that they do in other states. Mm. And for the success that California has been able to accomplish in the last 10 or 20 years, is it in, in seemingly the, the transition within this organization from a federal focus to a state focus – Is it your view that it's simply a hopeless situation in Washington and that federal gun policy is just so unlikely that it's not worth the time and effort? Or or what is what sort of the perspective of from your from your perspective or from the organization in terms of what might be possible from a federal level? Well, you couldn't do this kind of work if you are a pessimist. (laughs) Um, You know, I'm always optimistic that, you know, that the uh, arc of change bends toward justice ultimately and that truth and the facts, you know, I'm a litigator at heart. And so the truth will win. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, we know based on the real research, the peer reviewed solid research that's being done, that these laws work, that they Mm -hmm. make a difference. They reduce and prevent gun violence. So sooner or later, it will happen. Enough people will be moved to act that we're going to get it in place at the federal level. Now in this moment in time with this particular Congress, Mm I mean, the president has done everything he possibly can within his executive power, which unfortunately has limitations, but he certainly tried. He's used his bully pulpit. He's tried through executive order, but it's just limited. Mm -hmm. Uh, With this Congress, I don't necessarily see anything happening, but, you know, the House turns over or at least has a chance Mm -hmm. to change every two years. Mm -hmm. Um, The Senate is pretty close. You know, we did have 54, 55 votes for the background checks um, after Newtown. Mm -hmm. So, you know... Is it impossible in Washington? I think ultimately, no. I think the time will come when we do have uh, parties in power who are interested in this issue and will change it. Mm -hmm. But I think in this moment, it's hard for me to see anything happening, certainly with the exact Congress we have now. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, this is the first time I've ever heard presidential candidates talking about gun policy this openly. That's never happened before. Mm. So it's been interesting. You know, we don't make any comments on candidates for office, but just the fact that presidential candidates are arguing about who's better on gun policy mm-hmm. is kind of amazing. Yeah. I mean, that's that's never happened. So to me, that shows you some of the cultural shift and political shift that's already happening, even if we're not there yet, mm-hmm. you know? Um, to me, that is tremendous progress. And when you look and analyze the situation in Washington with the current Congress, what is your general conclusion in terms of 
the ra- the reasons for why seemingly sane gun control policies are not being championed by large numbers of, of Congress? Is it simply the the influence of a single lobbying group? Is it money in politics? What, what's your assessment of what, what's driving this? Yes, <laughs> both of those. <laughs> Um, you know, there are champions in Congress. There's some amazing Senate yeah. champions. You know, our own Senator Feinstein has always been a champion on this issue. Dick Durbin, mm-hmm. Lautenberg when he was alive, and now Cory Booker. I mean, there's there are a number of amazing champions on this issue, and there always have been, both in the House and the Senate. You know, Carolyn McCarthy, who lost her husband and her son, was injured in the Long Island Railroad shooting, has been a champion for a long time. And she's not alone. Congresswoman Etsy from Connecticut has been fantastic. I mean, there's champions. I Mm -hmm. think it's a combination of money and politics. You know, up until the last few years, the NRA was the only money in politics on this issue. So there wasn't a balance. You know, Congress people or legislators could get money from the NRA, but there wasn't money coming in the other side. So there's Mm -hmm. no there's Mm -hmm. no downside. That's changed. Mm. Now, all of a sudden, between uh, Gabby Gifford's organization, Michael Bloomberg's organization, there's a lot of money coming in. So that first piece has certainly shifted. And then the other issue is vote, right? Single-issue voters. There aren't a ton of issues that carry single-issue voters. Mm. And guns are one of them. Now, they don't have a lot of people, but they're very noisy and they're very committed Mm -hmm. and they're Mm single-issue. So that tends to have a lot of power. I once had a conversation with a congressman where we were talking about a piece of legislation and I asked him what his position was and he said he supported it, but he wasn't sure he could vote for it. Mm -hmm. And I asked, why not? And he said, well, if he votes for it, he will be deluged with calls from gun owners. And I said, interesting, you know, what does deluged mean? How many calls is that? And he said, "Ah, 20, 30. And I was like, wait, what? 30 calls is a deluge enough to change your vote? And he said, well, yeah, because very rarely do I get 30 calls on one issue. And I'm supposed to extrapolate that out to my entire voting base. That's meaningful. And I thought, wow, we just need to get organized. You know, we just need enough people getting mobilized and making those calls so that, yeah, maybe they still get 30, but they get 30 on the other side so they can vote their conscience. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think some of that is happening. There's a lot of grassroots action right now on this issue that wasn't there three years ago Mm -hmm. uh, as the same groups, Bloomberg, Gabby Giffords, Brady, you know, they're really doing a good job of mobilizing um, energy. People are showing up at state houses. They're making those calls. Uh, we have ballot initiatives now. This is a whole new world, right? Mm-hmm. So there were states, and I'll use my first example as Washington because it's where the first successful ballot initiative happened last year. Um, Washington, or two years ago, Washington, um, we couldn't get a background check bill passed there because we just didn't have quite the votes in, mm-hmm. the, in the legislature. So we put it on the ballot and put it to the voters, and we won. And wow, how exciting. Like, actually, you can circumvent this gridlocked political process that's dominated by a special interest group and make progress that way. So it's going to be on three or four ballots this year, Hmm. four at least, I think. So far, Nevada, Maine, California, which has, you know, different issues, but still a ballot initiative. And and I've heard of two more states that are contemplating ballot initiatives. Hmm. So that's a real to me that's a really interesting shift too like okay legislators you if you don't want to represent the will of your constituents because 90 percent of them support this we're going to go around you mm-hmm. um, and so that to me is exciting too because it's another avenue by which we can make progress yeah in, in hypothetically let, let's say in 20 or 30 years that the model that california has created has been implemented across the country and is is ubiquitous among all 50 states they've taken upon themselves to uh, to enact these these gun control laws, and they're working successfully. 
from a legal perspective, what, in your judgment, based on Supreme Court decisions or just based upon your reading of the Second Amendment, are the limitations of uh, how far gun control can go in America? So the Supreme Court has spoken very directly on this. They did not mince words. They, for the first time in 2008 in the Heller case and then in 2010 in McDonald, they very specifically addressed what they believe the scope of the Second Amendment is. And what they said is you can't entirely ban private gun ownership. Individuals have a right to own a gun, and they actually said a handgun because that's the most popular mm-hmm. weapon for self-defense, in your home mm-hmm. for self-defense. Mm-hmm. You can't prohibit citizens from having a handgun in their home for self-defense. And that's it. They said that does not mean that you can't, that long-standing prohibitions are invalid. It doesn't mean you can't ban guns in sensitive places, that you can't ban unusually dangerous weapons. I mean, they kind of listed all these things that they said were presumptively constitutional or valid. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what they what they circumscribed under the Second Amendment was a very, very narrow individual right. Mm. And they certainly could have said anything they wanted. They, what was being challenged was a complete ban. Mm. So they had the option to define what the scope of that right was. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was pleased to see that what they actually stated was very narrow. And since that decision, of course, the NRA and their allies came out and basically challenged every law in the books after that decision, saying it's all unconstitutional. Hmm. Um, And in about 93% of those cases, estimate, um, courts have upheld regulations and said, nope, Hmm. assault weapon restrictions and concealed carry restrictions and waiting periods and all these things do not violate the Second Amendment. They're Hmm. perfectly constitutional. Hmm. But the Supreme Court has not taken it up again. So you're talking about circuit courts, right? Right. Um, The Supreme Court's actually had more than 60 opportunities to review additional laws, additional restrictions that they can say, nope, that violates the Second Amendment. And they haven't done it. They've rejected certiorari. So they've rejected cert or the opportunity to review cases on appeal, Mm. basically letting these laws stand Mm. intentionally. Mm. It's probably because they don't have the votes. And so they're not taking it up. Um, So what the Supreme Court has held, I I say this all the time when I do public speaking because it's so important. The Second Amendment may be a rhetorical impediment, but it is certainly not a legal impediment to gun regulation. You know, Mm -hmm. they keep saying this violates the Second Amendment. Well, they don't get to decide what it means. The Supreme Court and the Mm -hmm. courts do, and the the courts don't agree with them. Mm. Um, So... And for organizations like yours and others across the country that are involved in in this fight, is it commonplace or is it basically understood that there are limits and that you know as it stands right now that you're not going to try to fight the battle that people don't have a right to own handguns in their in their own place of residence in the United States that that is sort of just off the off the table for now seemingly is that the perspective of most gun control organizations in America sure yeah I mean I'm at heart I'm a constitutional lawyer I whether I agree with the Supreme Court's decision or not it is the law of the land hmm. um, and certainly with the same court basically uh, breakdown in place now that you had then there's not it's not going to be overturned by this court at this hmm. time it is the law that's in place and and I think what's incumbent on us is to figure out you know, where those margins are and make sure that what we're doing will stand up to legal challenge. Hmm. Um, You know, what is the limit? You know, I think the limit is you can't ban guns. You probably can't put impediments in place that would inhibit people from being able to acquire guns. So background checks, no problem. Mm -hmm. Run a background check, Mm -hmm. you get your gun. There's no impediment there. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, if you force people to pay $100,000 for a gun at some point, it would cross into making it impossible. Mm -hmm. But 
everything in place now, licensing, registration, background checks, whatever it is, none of that is an impediment to you actually owning a gun, which is mm -hmm. where that sort of standard falls. Hmm. And if, if you could uh, sort of project in the future and design what America would look like in 20 or 30 years and, and be a benevolent dictator for a day, what would that country look like from, from your perspective as a, uh, someone who studied constitutional law, as someone who's familiar with this issue, um, for your children, what, what would you like the next generation to be uh, raised in, in terms of the environment in relation to, to guns in America? I mean, I would love to see really comprehensive regulation like you have in a lot of countries already. It doesn't mean people can't own guns. Countries like Canada and Australia, they have a lot of gun ownership, but it's pretty well regulated. You know, mm. people should have training. They should have background checks. Guns should be registered. Um, certain types of really dangerous guns that are, you know, are used in mass shootings should not be available to civilians. Mm. Dealers should be really tightly regulated because a few dealers lead to a huge flow of illegal guns. Mm. Um, there should be a lot of gun owner responsibility. Guns should be stored safely. I look forward to the day smart guns are very common where you have biometrics or RFIDs or whatever mm -hmm. it is that makes sure that children, other people who shouldn't have them can't get a hold of guns that don't belong to them. Mm -hmm. um, so a combination of, you know, like we did with seatbelts, right? With not seatbelts, with cars. Mm -hmm. So we looked at car death and we said, okay, all these people are dying. What can we do to, people are going to have cars. How do we make it safer, right? right. So people are going to have guns in America. It's part of where we are. What can we do to make it safer? We can make the guns themselves safer. We can change people's behaviors to mm -hmm. make them more responsible. Mm -hmm. We can create a really stalwart system of licensing, registration, all that stuff like we have around cars. I mean, mm -hmm. gun, car, car death and injury has plummeted, yeah. right? Because we took this really comprehensive public health approach to regulating them and educating people. We could do the same thing with guns and people could still have guns, mm. um, but it would just be a completely different cultural norm and, and system. Mm. So that to me would be the ideal approach. It'd be to be really smart, do a lot of research, take look at it from every single angle. You know, really be, I mean, this is an intelligent problem solving country at right. our best. Right. And this is an issue that there are solutions. So yeah. why not apply that? You know, we live in the center of disruptive technology. No problem can't be fixed. I mean, this is this issue is no different. Just we don't have the political will to make take those steps hmm. yet. Last question I want to ask you. Yeah. Um, for, for people in this country, that this is such a hot-button issue for so many people, and it just gets very heated very quickly for, for a lot of people who have strong feelings about this. Uh, from your perspective in, in studying this issue for as long as you have, what are the some of the common myths or misconceptions or flat-out lies that you come across in your daily experience or, or yearly experience with this issue that um, you always feel uh, a desire to correct or to speak out against? What are a, you know, one or a few of those that, that come to mind? The whole self-defense argument tends to be a complete misnomer. Um, a good guy with a gun, you know, the only thing that stops a bad guy with a, with a gun is a good guy with a gun is complete BS. Mm. So number one, good guys with guns don't stop bad guys with guns. They like shoot the wrong person or they don't get their gun out in time. There's all kinds of studies on that. Having a gun in your home is a huge risk to yourself and your family. Um, having more guns in any community makes the likelihood of gun death higher. Mm -hmm. It's just an absolute numerical correlation. Mm -hmm. So, you know, more guns creates more problems. It doesn't solve problems. And mm -hmm. this idea that having more people armed is going to somehow make things better is completely insane and scientifically 
disproven. Mm. So that's a big piece of what I wish people understood was that, you know, guns themselves, it doesn't mean we can't have them, but they are not going to fix our gun violence problem, more mm. guns. Um, so that's sort of a piece of what I try and talk about. The other thing lately I've been hearing a lot is there's a big gun uh, tragedy and, and gun sales spike, yeah. right? So what's that about? Well, what's really interesting if you scratch the surface is that gun ownership in America is decreasing. So there are fewer and fewer people in households with guns than there were 10, 20, 30 years ago. The numbers have been going down, down, down. Mm -hmm. So when you hear that there's a spike in gun sales, that's not a bunch of new people going out and buying guns. That's a bunch of people that already have five or 10 or 20 guns going out and buying a few more for their arsenal, mm -hmm. right? So what you have is like this sort of four, I think the number, I don't want to get the numbers wrong, 8% of gun owners own 40% of guns in America, right? So... To me, the underlying story is gun ownership is going down. So how do gun manufacturers keep making money mm. selling more guns? Well, they make more dangerous weapons like assault weapons and convince gun owners they need them right. so they can sell them. Or a tragedy happens and they say, Obama's about to confiscate all your guns. You better go out and buy more guns and ammo and hoard them somewhere before they you know, abolish gun purchasing, which is insane. Yeah. Um, but there's all these ways in which they create paranoia and fear and drive sales. They don't mm. represent gun owners. They represent the gun industry who yeah. wants to sell more guns. So I think this idea that more guns are out there is, is interestingly not true. And mm. the last thing I'll say is mm. that the NRA goes out there and purports to speak for gun owners. Um, if there's 4 million NRA members, which is what they claim for, 5 million, and about 80 million gun owners in America, they actually represent about 5%. Mm of gun owners and of those gun NRA members, when they poll them, about 75% of them support gun policy. So they're speaking for this tiny, tiny minority of maybe a million gun owners, NRA members, mm. and yet they have this totally outsized voice and power because they pretend they're speaking for 80 million right. when they're absolutely not. And I think people, people think they're like a magnanimous organization teaching gun safety, and they're not. They're a policy organization representing gu the gun industry, mm. and they speak for a very small uh, radical fringe, and mm. yet 120,000 people get shot because our legislators don't stand up to them. Hmm. So I think knowing those facts about the NRA, about gun ownership, and about kind of how those things all fit together helps dispel this myth about what's actually happening hmm. in this country. Hmm. So there's a few things. Very good. <laughs> Robin, this is really a pleasure. I appreciate you coming on the show. This is fascinating. Good. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. If you're interested in learning more about The Exchange, want to listen to episodes online, or would like to reach out to the show, feel free to visit the show's website at theexchangeshow.com.